Welcome to Innovation Capital, presented by PatSnap. Here on Innovation Capital, we take a fresh, unfiltered look at some of the biggest topics shaping innovation today. Leave everything you know about innovation at the door, because you have now entered a universe where we turn established ideas on their head and ask the questions that fuel great innovation, growth and scalability. This is Innovation Capital. Hi, and welcome back to episode eight of Innovation Capital presented by PatSnap. In today's episode, Ray sits down with Joe Secon. In this episode, we will look at the importance of IP in startups and how having a strong understanding of IP can support founders through the innovation process. Joe Secon is a senior lecturer in IP at the University of Portsmouth and visiting professor at Bocconi University in Milan. He has provided extensive pro bono mentoring and entrepreneurship through his award-winning intellectual property advice support service, iPass. You're absolutely going to love today's episode, and without further ado, let's jump right in. Joe, welcome to Innovation Capital. So I would love to kick off with learning about your background and how you ended up in the wonderful world of IP and <laughs> coaching entrepreneurial founders and startups. Thanks, firstly, Ray, for having me on this podcast. Um, well, um, I'm a senior lecturer in intellectual property law at the University of Portsmouth um, and also visiting professor at Bocconi University in Paris, Nantes University in Europe. Um, and one of the things really that I've found in my academic career is that students do have um, a lack of understanding of some of the basic concepts in relation to intellectual property, um, and particularly students and graduates who are looking to set up their own businesses. Um, and so, I mean, I, I've basically sort of combined my knowledge of IP um, and also sort of my interest in entrepreneurship um, to set up something called IPASS, the Intellectual Property Advice Support Service. And this is a clinic um, that runs at the University of Portsmouth. And essentially, it uses law students trained by me to actually advise and guide um, students um, and graduates with great startup ideas. Um, and that's also led me to sort of work with the NatWest Entrepreneur Accelerator Program in London, um, where I advise um, not just students and graduates, I hasten to add, um, but other people who've come up with some fantastic ideas and wish to sort of identify and protect and commercialize their IP. Yeah. And on a broad, on a personal level, Joe, yeah. what drew you personally to the world of IP? Because I'm guessing not many kids grow up thinking, well, I'm going to be really <laughs> trademarks, trade secrets. So yeah. at a personal level, what was that aha moment in your younger years or on your early part of your yeah, I mean, I, I think it was um, it was at school. It wasn't. A, I mean, at school, I was always interested in sort of enterprise and entrepreneurship, uh, but then I'd always hear stories of um, somebody had you know had a great idea for an invention, but they had disclosed it too early, and somebody had sort of ripped it off and and copied the idea, and then gone on to you know kind of make you know millions for, from that basic idea. So. Um, 
I think I'd I'd always had the interest in in becoming a lawyer because I'd really sort of enjoyed the English language and just the just the sort of the the relationship between language and and law. Um, but then I kind of saw my moment as in well, actually, I would really like to help. Um, these people bring their ideas to the public and actually the people who actually have the ideas as opposed to other people who take advantage of those people who don't have a knowledge of IP. So it kind of sort of snowballed from there. And then I went to university um, and I studied IP law as a as a unit, as a, as a module, one of um, my uh, degree pathways. And, and that really got me hooked. And then I kind of thought, well, you know, I mean, I, I'm not an engineer myself, but I'd, I'd love to help engineers and other people with non-legal backgrounds just basically sort of come up with the idea and then go into the into the public and and, and exploit it fully so that that was really it so it, it was it was kind of I'd always had that intrinsic desire to, to help others and using my skill set with an understanding of law I think that really led me to to, to, to kind of helping um, entrepreneurs and particularly sole entrepreneurs yeah, and on a broad level, Joe, we still see this here at Patsnap with the community that we're building and serving of this still a lack of understanding around IP. So if you look at the S&P 500, 85% of their assets are intangible in terms of value creation. However, the wider world, be it emerging graduates, MBAs or people who are early in their career, that, that pay doesn't really drop early in one's career. And also on a public level, if I were to just mention IP to a friend or a family member at a party, it just wouldn't click like other assets like real estate or, or equities. Why do you think that is so? And where do you think we are on the, on the journey on the wider world actually understanding the power of intellectual property? Yeah, I mean, I think you've hit absolutely the nail on the head. I think there is a huge disconnect between the the, the value of intellectual property to our knowledge based economy and and for and for people just having a sort of a, a general basic understanding. And I think um, I think the issue really lies in terms of sort of schooling. You know, are we introducing? Um, children sufficiently uh, to the whole concept of you know identify and protect and commercializing ip i mean again those are sort of very esoteric concepts but you know there are exercises that can be done even with school children you know in relation to the stories they're reading at school you know uh, you know i wonder who wrote that story and would it be right for instance for uh, for somebody to sort of copy that story and say that was their own so there's things we can do and i think it's it's down to an education um, it's an educational issue at school. Um, I also think at universities, my own sector, I, I think universities still need to do far more in terms of introducing IP into the curriculum. So for me, and presumably for you as well, Ray, you know, that IP education should be sort of compulsory, um, not just for, you know, um, students and graduates who have aspirations to become entrepreneurs, but just generally. Um, you know, people are creating so much content on social media. You know, who owns the intellectual property rights in that? Um, you know, young people are now becoming influencers. So who, you know, who owns the intellectual property in their image rights? So I, I, I think it's largely sort of a, an educational issue. And we saw this with the music industry about sort of 15 years ago when literally it was brought down on its knees when we had 
people sort of sharing content um, using file sharing sites. And the industry responded by coming up with um, business models such as Spotify and Apple Music and and so on. So uh, for me, I think it's an educational issue, to be honest. And and the UK Intellectual Property Office, I must confess, are doing some fantastic work here. But I think, you know, um, schools, um, uh, I think universities can uh, can do... Uh, you know, a lot more. So to give you an example, in most universities, you have about two to three IP academics. Now, if you compare that to, um, you know, other um, um, disciplines such as marketing, you'll have far more. And I think that speaks volumes in terms of the priority potentially given to IP. Um, so I, I think education really is, is, is the key to this. And where do you think we are, Joe, yeah. in terms of IP being really entrenched at an academic level or or be it when people are embarking upon their career in, in university, say sixth form uh, and colleges, yeah. where do you think we are? Are we at the first innings or is it really moving <laughs> up? Have you got any example? I think it's a bit of a mixed picture because I think some universities are doing sort of particularly well. So, I mean, for instance, the university I'm based at, University of Portsmouth, obviously I'm a big advocate. We've set up something called uh, the Intellectual Property Advice uh, Advice Support Service, a sort of clinic there. Uh, other universities have followed suit. But I think generally um, we are way, way behind in Europe, uh, you know, compared to the United States of America. So I have colleagues at Stanford University. They have IP clinics running. Um, they have IP modules, um, you know, which are essentially compulsory for most students who who, who study um, um, either law or a business discipline and even engineering as well. So I, I, I think there, there seems to be um, a gap between the offering available in terms of IP in the United States in terms of education compared to Europe. Um, but I think particularly um, the UK, um, given that it has a number of now accelerators um, either connected or based at universities. I think that is changing. But for me, the, the, the fundamental issue is, is that we are now in effectively a knowledge-based economy. Um, and therefore, as you said, you know, 85%, I think you were saying, of, of assets for, 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 for tech businesses are, are that intangible assets. So therefore, all employees, you know, from the C-suite downwards, they, they need to have a knowledge of, of IP. Um, and I think for, for, for many graduates who are starting their businesses um, or their business journey, that must come from the university. Um, because the universities, after all, have a duty to, um, you know, to make sure that when students do graduate, uh, graduate, they have the sort of the, the, the skill set in order to sort of fulfil their ambitions. And in terms with iPass, we're seeing similar things in certain parts of North America, parts of Europe, yep. where you're seeing these accelerators mm. through early stage courses, which enable startup founders to get their arms around IP. But the, yeah. when I saw iPass, it reminded me of the beginning of our journey here at Pax yeah. We're yeah. just focusing on keeping the lights on. <laughs> you literally fundamentally don't even know what you're doing at the beginning. Yes. It's kind of yeah. keeping your head above water. So the last yeah. thing you're ever thinking about is yeah. getting your arms around intangible assets, ensuring yeah. them, being yeah. proactive or defensive with them. So yeah. 
what's the genesis behind that and how are you cultivating that mindset at the early stage because i'm guessing that that must pose many challenges yeah um, i mean absolutely and again um you know the the issue you've just raised I, i've heard so many times and it's so understandable and i have so much empathy for it you know if you're if you've come up with a fantastic idea and you've got some traction, you've developed an MVP, and let's say you've even you know gone where 99.9% .9 of entrepreneurs don't, and you've actually launched something that has some traction in the marketplace, you're absolutely right. You know you're juggling different balls or different plates, whichever metaphor you want to use. But the the point I always come back to, and I've had so many people at at the iPass clinic that I run with the same issue. Well, look, you know, we're here because this service is free. We simply can't afford to go to a patent attorney or a trademark attorney to look at some of the intellectual property right issues that we know deep down, you know, in the back of our head, we need to address. So I, I give them the following scenario. I say you either, we either sit down now we get some advice. We, you know, we we effectively look at whether you have some intellectual property here to protect and how to protect it. So, for instance, have you got a technical innovation um, underpinning your business idea? Fantastic. Let's have a look at you know patentability and doing a sort of a freedom to operate um, search. Um, however, I said if you you know if you don't do that now, you could be faced with this issue where you're about to launch, let's say, a product emanating from your business idea. And let's say a few days before, and this has happened to people who've been in my clinic, um, they've come in and said, we've just received a cease and desist letter. And they said, we don't know what to do because we've developed this product. And now um, a competitor is saying that we're infringing their patent. And, uh, and and as you can probably tell from the sort of the moral of the story is, is that you must, as you say, embrace the issue of IP at the very beginning. So then if you do have to pivot in terms of your product, possibly potentially infringing on a competitor's patent, then essentially you can at least steer around that or at least get some advice in order to, you know, combat any potential um, infringements or letters that you may receive in the future. So it is an issue I completely sympathize with, Ray. Um, but it, it, I think it's far better um, to, you know, really deal with the issue head on early as possible when there's a degree of flexibility um, in how you develop your offering to, to the marketplace, as opposed to later when, you know, your product has crystallized and then it's probably going to be extraordinarily expensive um, and, uh, you know, far harder to actually change it, the, the product or service that you're offering. And Joe, in terms of industry, yeah. Yeah. where are you seeing traction with IPOS where you've got early stage founders who actually yeah. care and, and IP is front of mind and they are yeah. attending um, the workshops and, and being quite proactive in, in yeah. asking questions learning and then executing on that knowledge what industries are looking compelling to you guys yeah so i i think for for us i think i think certainly fintech um there there's lots of inquiries that i receive uh, through the clinic or informally um people asking for advice there in terms of encroaching upon sort of uh, third-party patents 
Um, also, I think um, medical tech as well. I think there's lots of innovation going on there. So I've, over the past few years, been mentoring uh, a number of STEM students uh, sort of informally um, who are sort of coming up with medical devices. So, for instance, um, one individual is working on, on a device um, or an app which basically can allow uh, patients who've had heart conditions to actually um, register their um, symptoms daily. And then if those symptoms, um, you know, uh, correlate with early symptoms of, of another heart attack or other serious condition, um, then that information is communicated to the GP straight away. Now, that in itself is a, is a minefield in terms of um, um, uh, patents and freedom to operate searches. So I think those, those two areas certainly are where students and graduates are, are hovering. And essentially, again, it comes back to the same point. They, you know, these are high caliber students, but who have a very limited knowledge of um, intellectual property, intellectual property rights, and some of the sort of the basic agreements, Ray, you and I would probably take for granted, you know, NDA agreements, licensing agreements, and so on. So it does need a steer. It does need sort of someone experienced, not necessarily a patent attorney, I would hasten to add, or a trademark attorney or a or generalist IP solicitor, uh, but somebody who kind of understands um, where the students are coming from, understands that they're going to possibly ask questions, which they may be afraid to ask somebody in a suit in an office, but they're more happy to ask an academic um, in a sort of a fairly informal setting. Uh, and Joe, what do the questions look like initially if you're working with an age <laughs> yeah. entrepreneur? in yeah. the medtech sphere or, or fintech? Is there a common kind yeah. of cohort of questions which just come up initially? Yeah, I mean, I, I the reason why I laughed at that, some of the questions are, are I mean, um, full credit to them they ask, but some of the questions are sort of fairly, uh, fairly standard, fairly basic. So one of the questions, and again, um, this applies uh, to uh, to people who come through the clinic, regardless of whether they're fintech or, or, or medtech, but the questions seem to focus on the following. Um, I... I, I think we've, you know, come up with a, a fantastic app, let's say, or a, or a technical product. Um, and how do I patent it? Um, or I'm looking to draft um, a patent application myself, um, you know, and I've heard about a freedom to operate search. So that would be another question. How do I conduct a freedom to operate search? Um, I've stumbled across, um, and again, another question would be, I've stumbled across uh, a database called eSpaceNet. Um, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I, I should be using this to search for other patents. So how do I do that? So some of the questions are sort of fairly um, practical. Um, and, I'm, uh, and in relation to the other major intellectual property right that we deal with at, at, the, at the clinic, uh, trademarks, um, how do I... Um, search for other trademarks because I don't want to be infringing on a on, on, on somebody else's um, trademark and also how do I go about um, um, registering um, a trademark as well so the questions are I, I would classify as very how-to questions so it's how to do something how to get from where I am now to register the intellectual property right and the and the, and the other question always 
um, that I receive is how much is this going to cost and how quickly can I secure um, you know, a, a, a patent or at least get a patent application in so that I can get um, a priority date for my application. So those are the type of questions. But I mean, one more thought, Ray, occurs to me now is that particularly in fintech and, and medtech, we're seeing lots of um, students and graduates who are looking to get some sort of initial seed funding, sort of possibly even angel investment. And, and, and I'm sure you know, Ray, that one of the key criteria that angel investors look for is, you know, have you made some effort to protect the IP in your idea, because your idea, let's say, sounds fantastic. Um, but what have you done in order to protect it? So one of the other things that we do at the IPASS clinic is uh, coach uh, students and graduates to answer those very questions. So instead of saying, oh, I've spoken to a patent attorney, well, okay, what did a patent attorney say? We then coach them to say, well, actually, we know that we needed to undertake a freedom to operate search. So we've done that using the free to use available databases that we have. And the um, the um, search results have shown that we do have effectively a green light to continue with developing this product that we're presenting to you today. Um, and these are the patents um, that we've looked at and examined. And we we feel that we're outside of the claims of those patents. So you can see the sort of the difference between one person pitching and asking for, let's say, £100,000 to an angel investor and saying, I've spoken to a patent attorney, and then another person who comes to the clinic and turns around and says, well, actually, I can tell you about the freedom to operate search, I can tell you about the patents in the sphere, and I can also tell you about the claims and how we sit outside, and I, um, and I know who I would invest in. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned the early stage venture community. So yep. when it comes to the folks providing initial capital, yep. what's their knowledge base like in terms of thinking about IP with an early stage med tech business? Yeah. Or, or a fintech startup, is it commonplace? Do they do they have a good foundational knowledge, and and is IP and the exposure around that front of mind for potential investors? Well, that, that's a fantastic question. I mean, I, I can only speak sort of anecdotally, um, and so the investors I've spoken to informally at events, they have a pretty good knowledge of a the 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 sectors they want to invest in and the the, the kind of the sort of the, the the patents in that field but a number of angel investors will also sort of delegate that task to um, so they'll have a sort of a general headline awareness, for instance, of, of a particular sector that they're looking to invest in and some of the new technology coming through and some of the patents there. But many will also sort of delegate that task to sort of people within their organization or uh, or an attorney that, you know, that, that they, they trust. So I would say generally that the knowledge is there. You know, so that they they understand, you know, sort of the the rudimentaries of 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 patenting and where the gaps are, you know, in a particular sector in relation to patents. Um, but for the really sort of technical aspects of a particular um, business idea, pitch to them if there is a um, if there is an issue regarding patents, then certainly they they would you know have that knowledge themselves, or they would acquire that you know through um, through a colleague. And, and with the MPE piece, obviously that's just a fancy world word yeah. for patrol uh, for our audience. Mm. 
I know the exposure, I think back in 2012 in the US, it was $29 billion yeah. back eight, nine years ago. I know it has been declining in North America to, yeah. I think, 8 to $12 billion a year in terms of exposure, especially the yeah. NPEs going after the smaller folks. Yeah. What's the lay of the land now in Europe and the UK on exposure to NPEs and patent trolls for emergent businesses in the UK? I, to be honest, I haven't had. Um, I mean, I mean, here I'd put my sort of academic hat on. Um, in terms of the clinic, we haven't really had, you know, that much exposure to sort of the the, the issue sort of of of, of patent trolls. But it's sort of in terms of um, just looking more generally at some of the sort of the academic literature in the field. I mean, I, again, I'd, I'd sort of get back to you about sort of percentages, but I, I think there is an increasing awareness amongst um, some of the organizations involved in regulating um, sort of patents and obviously, you know, the, the whole issue, the issue of patent trolls. So for instance, the World Intellectual Property Organization, the UK IPO, there, there are issues there that they're looking to address in terms of what can we do within the legislation in order to sort of mitigate against the worst effects of patent trolling. So, for instance, um, the World Intellectual Property Organization is looking at uh, the PCT, the Patent Cooperation Treaty, and other pieces of, of, of legislation and conventions in order to stop that. Because I think there's sort of fundamentally, and I mean, I may be going sort of off tangent here, but I think there's fundamentally... Uh, sort of an ethical issue around uh, around sort of patent trolling and so on because if you look at one of the main justifications or philosophical rationales for having patents is that you know um, mankind or society benefits you know the the social contract is basically the the inventor um, in return for making the invention public um, you know benefits by securing a patent now sort of patent trolling it's arguable um it kind of goes against that basic premise um and so i i think it it's a, it's a difficult one right i mean i i think it's certainly an issue that um legislators and others are aware of but i think um patent trolling um I think in the United States is a sort of a sort of a big issue because obviously, as you're probably aware, Ray, uh, sort of patenting in in America is somewhat easier to to be granted the initial patent compared to the compared to Europe. And, and on a broader level, just the whole conjecture around the importance of the patent system, and we're seeing some crazy things in the last year or so around. NFT. So there's this piece of technology based around the blockchain called non-fungible tokens. So if I, if I'm a, an artist and I produce a song, if I upload it on a blockchain and I attach the Ray token to my music, in terms of future royalties, automatically assigned to me because I have the token and it's on the blockchain. It's all secure. It's immutable. It can be touched. So I get, say, 5% royalties for the rest of my life whenever my song is being played or resold in a certain jurisdiction. So we are seeing this new wave of blockchain and tokenization actually potentially threatening the entire point of a, having a patent system in the first place. Have you ever reflected on that? I know it's a really broad topic. 
and, and very left field. But where do you think we are on that? Because I speak to folks saying, in certain regions, we don't need a patent system. Blockchain, digitalization, it's the future. So, so what's your kind of professional opinion on that potential new paradigm, Joe? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting because we we've had um, we've had similar arguable sort of paradigm potential paradigm shifts. So, for instance, um, when we had you know effectively the explosion of broadband and people started sort of sharing music and other files with each other without recourse necessarily to the recording artists there are all sorts of sort of copyright infringements going on and people were saying at that point and again i'm not skeptical of bitcoin nor am i skeptical of the impact that bitcoin uh, sorry not bitcoin but just um, blockchain is essentially going to have um Again, the same thing was said about copyright. You know, this is the end of copyright. Copyright, we don't need copyright. We just share files. You know, who cares? Um, I'm not to be to be honest. I'm not sure where the situ. You know, where we're going to end up with um, blockchain. But certainly, I think there will have to be. Um, a serious reflection by organizations such as the World Intellectual Property Organization and intellectual property offices across the world as to how do we do how do we deal with the sort of the fundamental premise that will still exist. Um, if somebody um, has an idea um, and they create an intangible asset, how do we ensure that they can protect that? Now obviously um, blockchain circumvents the need for for patent protection um, in, in practical terms but I still think that issue will still exist because you know 20 years ago blockchain wasn't in you know the sort of the, the, the lexicon of, of language but it is here today who's to say what will happen in the future but we still need some sort of framework to deal with that now um, it's difficult for me to sort of say or predict you know what that framework will be but the idea that um you know stakeholders will allow such as wipo for there to be no framework whatsoever seems to me um well i i don't think that will happen there'll be some sort of framework that will be developed but we'll have to see i mean i would say the same thing i mean i was having a discussion recently with a colleague about artificial intelligence as well and what impact that will have um on 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 the whole ip system so one of the classic questions sort of posed um, always in artificial intelligence is what happens when the day comes when artificial intelligence starts creating ip who owns um, the intellectual property there. What happens to the commercialization of that? Um, you know, do we start looking at possibly changing the way we uh, patent so that the artificial intelligence itself, either the machine itself, actually has intellectual property rights? And what ethical issues does that um, uh, does does that you know does that also create as well? So I think um, it's it's a tricky one with. Um, blockchain to be honest um, and it's difficult for me to say but all I would say is that we've had these big paradigm shifts in the past and legislation has always come forward not that I'm a big advocate for legislation 
for for the sake of legislation in itself. But I think that there needs to be raised some sort of framework in place, and I think that that will emerge as um, blockchain um, does start taking off. And with the current challenges around, Joe, the the pandemic has this had a an impact on iPass or or the or the or the flow through of people wanting to start a business out of school. I mean, what's the level? moment in terms yeah, of- it, it has right has right huge impact um we're seeing more inquiries come through um students and graduates are realizing um because obviously the, the the impact of the pandemic on the economy has been significant not just here in the uk but obviously uh, across the world and some of the you know the reverberations we'll see now for the next two to three years as governments have to you know at some point rein in spending um and obviously the 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 jobs potentially are no longer there but i also think it that the pandemic has sort of created um, almost like a perfect storm because we have graduates who were looking increasingly before the pandemic uh, not to go into employment where they're in a kind of a, uh, an inverted commas nine to five. But then on top of the pandemic, we've seen, um, you know, you know, entire nation sat at home for a, for an entire year working from home. You know, the that you know the use of Zoom, etc. So I think students are increasingly and graduates are increasingly thinking. Well, actually, it's probably far better that we take control of our own destiny. That we're not reliant, you know, on uh, employment as such, and we use the skill sets that we have developed through our uh, through our degrees and create our own business. And obviously that has had a knock-on effect on the number of inquiries we've been having at the clinic and also ad hoc inquiries I've been having just generally through through my blog is that we're just getting more students wanting information as and yep, I get the fact that I need to protect my IP. This is the idea I've got. What should I be doing? And that for me is a fantastic question. I'd rather have uh, students or, or graduates coming to me with that question and basically admitting that they don't know uh, enough as they need to rather than somebody just you know um, developing an MVP and, and and trying to get funding and then get caught out at that point because they haven't protected their IP but the pandemic certainly Ray has had a has had a has had a huge impact and I think we're increasingly going to see more people stay in education um, whilst the the economic impact of of the pandemic um, actually dissipates. And that's interesting. So a slight silver lining. They <laughs> yes. say yeah. the best time to start a business is in a recession or mm. where the economies and the macros mm. are more in a backward position. So, so, so that's interesting. And in terms of government support, so a couple mm. of years ago, we saw great initiatives like the patent box, which yeah. allowed certain tax treatment on, on small businesses who have, have a focus around deploying um, yep. the IP asset class to kind of build a business. Yep. Is there anything you're seeing from innovation agencies in Europe or the UK or, 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 the, or the wider globe where yeah. governments are trying to drive the agenda on startup creation and, and having IP front of mind? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, um, uh, to the UK government's credit, I mean, it's always been 
I think for the last, anyway, for the last sort of 10 or 11 years, has always been very much focused on startups and entrepreneurship. So for instance, the, the UK government here set up, um, uh, you may have heard of them, Ray, sort of catapult centres, um, where sort of, uh, you know, high tech manufacturing uh, companies can set up in effectively government backed accelerators. Um, there's also um, sort of been funding available through various competitions um, where um, startups can actually pitch for funding. Um, and there's also been something called the Knowledge Transfer Partnership, which UK Innovate runs. Um, and, uh, you know, I've secured some funding through there to sort of help high tech um, innovative companies here on the south coast of England, you know, really look at sort of the IP landscape in relation uh, to their new product development. So recently been working with a company uh, that's developing a, a kind of a new sort of a recipe that they wish to launch in, in terms of a product. Um, you know, we've been looking, you know, to, to support them um, with sort of freedom to operate searches and looking at sort of pattern applications or whether we go the trade secret route in terms of that particular particular recipe so also you're probably aware Ray that um, the the UK government also provides support to uh, startups um, and smaller medium-sized businesses with um, sort of catapult centres and this is where sort of manufacturing startups and SMEs um, have a sort of a fantastic almost like an accelerator environment to sort of develop their sort of their business ideas so that there is a range of support available um to um to startups um but i think as always and and i think particularly you know given sort of the question uh, sort of about the pandemic and the impact we were talking about earlier on business i think there needs to be sort of more joined up thinking particularly in return particularly in regards to sort of entrepreneurship and 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 i think you know governments um if they sort of coordinate their efforts uh, and this is what will be required, sort of given sort of the impact of the pandemic on, on on economies. Then we can start thinking about initiatives which are more sort of international in outlook. So, for instance, um, accelerators, um, which um, you know um, go you know over different sort of countries. You know the same sort of frameworks in place in different countries. Also look at sort of visa requirements for sort of entrepreneurs. Uh, so that um, uh, individuals have sort of greater access um, to, to to different countries um, because some of the visa requirements on entrepreneurship can be quite um, stifling for entrepreneurs. And Joe, on, on a global level, I know in the yeah. UK with the body of work that you're doing as one of the thought leaders and leaders in this space, yeah, and Innovate UK who have deployed a good amount of capital. Yes, like catapult across various industries, but outside of the UK, is there particular geographies or countries who are just best in class who have really nailed it on stitching together the understanding of IP, innovation, R and D, and and helping yeah. startup companies really get their arms around that? Is there is there a particular best in case? Yeah, I mean, you really do well. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I mean, it's 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 the sort of the standard. Um, best in case always, I must confess, has to be the United States. I mean, the, the, the states are actually doing such a fantastic job. I mean, if you just look at the 
the number of startups um, coming through or the number of company registrations in America is just absolutely um, staggering. And I think that is largely down to two things. Um, firstly, um, the, the the framework of support is available. You know, one of the, the, the observations we were making earlier is that universities here in the UK could do more. If you look at most universities across the United States, even outside of, you know, the, the Stanford's and the Harvard's and the Yale's, um, most uh, universities in the United States will have some sort of entrepreneurship and IP curriculum um, on most uh, degree disciplines. They will also have um, IP clinics that are available and usually staffed by academics, but also staffed by sort of IP professionals, patent attorneys and so on. Also, I think there is that culture that exists within the startup community um, in, um, in, in the United States, which I think is emerging here in the United Kingdom and obviously across Europe. Also, the other thing you also have there is that you have, um, sort of poster boys, um, for, for, for entrepreneurship. So you have the Mark Zuckerbergers, um, you have the founders of Twitter, you have the Steve Jobs and so on. So all of this kind of adds up to, in a very positive sense, a kind of like a perfect storm where, you know, young people do aspire not to be bankers necessarily, not to be lawyers, not even to possibly to be doctors, although we, we should have more doctors, but um, they they want to take control of their destiny. They want to set up a business with the skill set they've got. And then there is that nurturing environment within universities um, and also education within schools, which equates entrepreneurship and starting your business with those professions which are referred to which are very well respected so i think for me anyway i mean others may disagree and others may point to possibly um, singapore and canada being other examples um, that should be noted but for me the united states is is well and truly it's sort of ahead of of of, um, of of most countries yeah it's interesting you mentioned just that general Except yeah. IP in the states, so you can even see it on here in the UK. We have Dragon's Den, but I think yes. the American equivalent is Shark Tank, and be it the Canadian yes. version or the US yeah. version, yeah. patents and IP are pretty much mentioned on every single episode. Yeah, so yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. No, just interesting you say that. I mean, um, sometimes uh, some of the earlier shows here of Dragon's Den, some of the early series, I used to wince at some of the answers given by um, by some of the uh, people sort of going in pitching, you know, when a dragon would quite, you know, quite fairly ask a question about the IP. I mean, uh, a lot of them were, were not able to answer it uh, just at all. You know, they weren't even aware that, you know, that they should even be thinking about IP. And obviously, as you can imagine, then the um, investment was lost. So, Joe, thank you for today. It's been great learning about your journey and congratulations on, on what you've built. And, and it's been great for you. to get your broader perspective. So a little bit of fun now, a complete off-piece. Okay. Go on then. So two books that you would recommend or, or, or gift most often? Um, Losing My Virginity by Richard Branson and uh, Second Bounce of the Ball by Ronald Cohen. Now, everybody will probably um, 
recognise the, the 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 name Richard Branson, um, but Ronald Cohn was a sort of a venture capitalist um, back in the sort of the early two thousand and nineteen nineties, and the second bounce of the ball is basically a book that tells you which ideas that you should be going for in terms of you know your startup vision. So that those two books, without a shadow of a doubt, and extraterrestrial life, believer <laughs> or non-believer. And believer why? believer the i think it's probably sort of um mankind's ego um but the idea that we're the only kind of living beings that exist um in the entire universe just it, i mean if you think about it, it just doesn't make any sense to me we we just haven't had contact yet <laughs> god i'm sounding <laughs> um <laughs> Um, yeah, cool. no, and you have an awesome weekend, and uh, please stay yeah. safe. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Ray. Really enjoyed that. Thanks very much. And that is it for today's episode with Joe Seccom. I'd like to thank Joe for taking the time and sharing his wisdom with us today. Absolutely amazing stuff. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to hit that subscribe button, share this episode out with a friend. And if you listened up to here and you want to explore this topic further, Joe has a course on this subject in our PatSnap Academy. For those of you who don't know, Academy by PatSnap is a free online learning hub to help innovators, entrepreneurs, and R&D teams utilize intellectual property to accelerate innovation in their organization. And to get a hold of this training with Joe, all you have to do is visit academy.patsnap.com. Again, that is academy.patsnap.com where you're gonna be able to unlock further training on this topic that was explored today by Ray and Joe. I wanna thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week with another episode. Until then, continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious.